Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, March the 29th, Brexit Day, or what was supposed to be Brexit Day. You're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The House of Commons has just voted by 344 votes to 286, a majority of 58, to reject again the agreement governing the terms of the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union. This is what Theresa May had to say. On Monday, this House will continue the process to see if there is a stable majority for a particular alternative version of our future relationship with the EU. Of course, all of the options will require the withdrawal agreement. Mr Speaker, I fear we are reaching the limits of this process in this House. This House House has rejected no deal. It has rejected no Brexit. On Wednesday, it rejected all the variations of the deal on the table. And today, it has rejected approving the withdrawal agreement alone and continuing a process on the future. This government will continue to press the case for the orderly Brexit that the result of the referendum demands. Now, joining me on the line from Westminster is our London editor, Dennis Staunton. We're also joined by Ronan McRae, the Professor of Constitutional and European Law at University College London. It should be said that should it ever be passed by the Commons at some stage, which is obviously a pretty moot question, the withdrawal agreement is only the first part of the process laid out in Article 50 governing the departure of a member state from the EU. And many of the debates which have been taking place earlier this week on the future relationship between the UK and the EU and questions such as membership of the customs union or the single market, they're explicitly not up for negotiation until this withdrawal stage has been completed, if it is ever completed. In today's Commons vote, Theresa May separated the withdrawal agreement from the political declaration, which does cover those matters, but Dennis, it didn't seem to do her much good. No, although uh, they lost by 58 votes. Last time, you remember, they lost by 149, and the time before that, they lost in uh, by 230. So, as one of the people in Downing Street was saying just now, uh, things are moving in, uh, in our direction. It's just that, uh, well, and so it's just that they lost. And so, uh, and so, so they. And in fact, the other point I suppose they can uh, they can say in their favour is that if you look back at this indicative votes process they had last week, the most popular option out of that was Ken Clark's proposal for a customs union. And so uh, today, uh, the withdrawal agreement got more votes than that. But obviously, the one thing that it has not got more votes than is no. And so what happens now? What happens on Monday? We return to the second stage, I suppose, of this indicative vote uh, process. Is it clear what that's going to be and how it's going to work? Not entirely clear, but what, what I think is going to happen is that what you saw... Uh, last week was that, or this week, uh, you had um, you, know, you had a number of options which did rather well. One of which was the customs union; another was the idea of a second referendum. I think what you're going to find now is that you have some composite options. So there's talk of, the, say, the people who are backing a customs union trying to get together with people who are backing the second referendum, so that they would say we back a customs union, but it will be put to a vote. Uh, there's also talk of the people who are backing uh, membership 
sort of single market plus customs union, that they would go together with the uh, backers of the second referendum because that would help uh, to unlock the votes of the SNP. So the SNP would vote, the, uh, would, would support the idea of, uh, you know, Norway plus, plus a referendum, but they wouldn't support the idea of customs union plus, whereas there are a lot of Labour Party members who would uh, think of things exactly the other way around. So you're going to have, I think, uh, a, another series of options, rather like you had the other day, people will be able to vote for as many as possible. What they haven't quite worked out is if they're going to change the methodology to have a single transfer vote, which obviously would uh, tend to accelerate the process of getting uh, a majority behind something. Now, uh, Roland, you tweeted something just a few days ago. I'm going to quote it here. Parliament can vote in favour of Customs Union, Norway, etc., etc. But legally, none of those can be negotiated under Article 50. Parliament will have to accept the withdrawal agreement if it wants to achieve those objectives and then negotiate them in the future relationship negotiations. So what's going on in the House of Commons at the moment? Is it some kind of category failure or misunderstanding or is there, is, is there something meaningful about the process which Dennis just described? Yeah, well... You think right from the start of the process, Britain has been uh, deluded about its ability to unilaterally shape the Brexit process. And Theresa May has finally kind of realised that. And she realises that actually the withdrawal agreement is not going to be changed. And there is this two-step process. First, the withdrawal agreement, then the future relationship negotiations. And you can see she's trying to explain, now that she's cottoned on, she's trying to explain that to MPs. But they don't seem to really take it on board, partly, I think, because they're all playing other games. Jeremy Corbyn wants an election. Scottish Nationalists want new referendum, referendum on independence, things like that for Scotland. But it does seem that, I mean, there is no legal way to get guarantees on a customs union or single market in the withdrawal agreement, because Article 50 cannot give a legal basis to the union to make that agreement. So that does mean that any the first stage towards any of those goals is accepting the withdrawal agreement. And I mean, that, that's why I suppose today's vote was meant to be on the withdrawal agreement alone. But uh, it still uh, seems to be mixed up in the minds of MPs with their desire for an ultimately harder soft Brexit. Because the EU is, you do have to change, the, the current political declaration does say uh, does, it does encapsulate Theresa May's fairly hard vi- bre- Brexit vision. But the EU has been crystal clear that it's willing to change that. Michel Barnier says, look, if you want to go for a customs union, we can change the political declaration within 48 hours. But what they're completely clear about is the withdrawal agreement is fixed and it's closed. And it doesn't even cover that much. It just covers the divorce arrangements. So I don't know... You're right. The uh, Parliament seems to be still not fully taking on board the nature of the Brexit process and the legal constraints and what can be in a withdrawal agreement. Dennis, is Dennis, is that a willful misunderstanding on the on the part of MPs, or is it just that they don't understand? It seems like the most fundamental point at all. Of, of all, it seems clear to me that no matter what might emerge from the from the process next week, um, as Ronan says, the political declaration is a declaration, but it's not binding on uh, what could quite likely be, uh, will almost certainly be a new prime minister, possibly a new government, or indeed a new parliament that will emerge in the course of the negotiations. 
That's true, but what uh, the Labour front bench say, people like Keir Starmer will say, is yes, it's absolutely true that any of the options that we're talking about, they require the withdrawal agreement. We accept the withdrawal agreement is not going to be changed. That includes the backstop, all the rest of it. But at the same time, uh, party to please Theresa May, uh, Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker wrote various letters. Uh, the EU made various statements, put in various language, which appeared to link the withdrawal agreement with the political declaration. The idea of that really politically was to try to persuade uh, the Conservative Party that the political declaration had perhaps a bit more legal heft than it actually has. But nonetheless, what the Labour frontbench will say is that if you just agree to the withdrawal agreement without any uh, you know, changes to the political declaration, that what you're doing really is, uh, is, is that you're entering a blind Brexit. And particularly given given that Theresa May has said that she's going to, uh, to step down as soon as this thing is agreed, that really you're uh, leaving uh, Brexit up to perhaps Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab or somebody uh, worse than that. Uh, now, of course, as Ronan says, the fact is that whoever is going to be the prime minister is going to be leading these negotiations. And since the withdrawal, uh, the political declaration, no matter what you put in it, whether it's Theresa May's lines or any other set of lines, it still is unbinding. So it can be negotiated and renegotiated as the the trade talks um, you know, proceed. Well, exactly. But nonetheless, but nonetheless, what they want is a kind of a political commitment. Uh, well, that's what some of them want. Of course, there are others who actually what they want really is to delay Brexit or to uh, or to reverse Brexit. And the best way of doing that is, I mean, the most effective way, obviously, is to ro revoke Article 50. There isn't going to be a majority for that. But the people who are supporting a second referendum hope that if in some way they can get an extension, a lengthy extension, uh, that that would mean that you would be able to persuade uh, the public to, um, uh, to back a second referendum. So, for example, if you were to put into uh, the uh, the legislation that any uh, agreement that was approved by the House of Commons would have to go to a confirmatory referendum. That obviously means you have to have a longer extension. It means you have to have a referendum campaign. And there's a chance, obviously, always that the referendum will decide that instead of going for this deal, uh, people want to remain in the European Union. So, I mean, that, that seems to me, Ronan, to be another sort of a category failure. There's not just the category failure of discussing things which it's not w within the ambit of this parliament pre-withdrawal uh, to decide, but also the, the question of a confirmatory referendum. These have been set out as if there were options uh, in the vote earlier this week, which, of course, people could vote yes for all of them if they wanted. But the reality is that they're not alternate options. You could choose one of the other ideal outcomes uh, of, on the relationship with the EU and the UK, or you could choose a form of the withdrawal agreement and then you could choose to have a vote on it as well. So it just seems to be a level of, of uh, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but a level of willful confusion, which leads me to believe that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bad faith because I don't think, no matter what people think about politicians, I don't think they're as dim as some of them seem to be behaving right now. No, I think Jeremy Corbyn wants an election above everything else. Uh, and I'm actually, uh, Theresa May wants in a way the unity of the Tory party above everything else. Mm. It, when you look at actually British politics, the partisanship is pretty shocking. I mean, you think uh, in Ireland we're a smaller country, so we probably feel more vulnerable. But I think if we were in this level of emergency, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour would have sat down and said, OK, look, let's agree something, get through this moment, and then we'll start fighting again. But there doesn't seem to be any appetite for that in Britain. 
And there are, as you say, a lot of people in bad faith, people who really, really want to stop Brexit, pretending that there, were, there is a forum they'd be happy with, or people who really want a no deal, pretending they're happy with something else. So there's this kind of shadow boxing. And I think you see Theresa May has been trying to set it up for ages so that it's her deal or no deal or her deal or no Brexit. But everybody keeps pushing it further and further, hoping that their ideal outcome will still kind of, they can still pursue it a bit. And it just, uh, I mean, because the, the, the actual legal situation is so clear, any form of Brexit will require the withdrawal agreement, as it is with no changes. And then once that's in place, they can fiddle with the political declaration and whoever is then in power will be able to pursue uh, the future relationship negotiations, harder or soft Brexit as they like. Now, there'll be constraints on that from the EU side and what they'll agree to, but they're happy, the EU is basically, you go for as hard or soft as you like and we have our own red lines, but we're happy for you to do that. But the other, those negotiations are going to last probably for five years, is what trade lawyers say. So the chances, there will definitely be an election before that. So there will be a chance for the British people to decide whether they want a hard or a soft Brexit before the end of those negotiations anyway. So in a way, some of the I think some of the concerns that it's a blindfold Brexit are misplaced. A, because any Brexit is blindfold because you have to agree to the draw agreement first, but also because the talks are going to take so long that there will inevitably be an election in the meantime. Now, Donald Tusk uh, in the last hour or so announced that there would be an emergency European Council meeting on April the 10th, which is the day before the new crash out of the EU day, the new Brexit day, um, if if things go on without the withdrawal agreement being accepted, at least at least in theory. Um, when I was reading, uh, I mean, a very interesting um, long political article about how all this came about, how Article 50 was implemented, how uh, on the ball, essentially, the um, Donald Tusk and his colleagues in the EU were as soon as um, the British people voted yes to leave the EU way back in summer of 2016 and how far ahead they have been of the British in in this game, if you characterise it as a game, how much more strategic they've been, uh, how much better they've been at looking around corners. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think their next move is, given that it's likely to be a bit more coherent than the next British move? Well, I mean, in a way, the EU has counterintuitively benefited from the fact that it's such a it is such a lumbering process of negotiation. You know, they had to get all 27 members to agree. So they had to very early on take soundings, work through what everybody wanted and systematically come to a position. And because that took so much work, once they come to that position, it's hard to change it. Whereas the British cabinet has been all over the place. It's been very flexible. They're hoping each faction is hoping for its own ideal outcome. So you see, the EU, in a way, by its own weakness, was forced to be really clear right from the start. Um, there's also now a bit of a, there's so much frustration in Brussels, I think, from what I hear, that there's no way they're going to change the agreement, even if, you know, that th this is our agreement, we're done with Britain. And Britain's unwritten constitution, where everything is written, is kind of very informally done, really hasn't worked very well because they, hadn't have, they didn't have to set out before the referendum what form legally Brexit would take. They were able to be, remain opaque about what they wanted for so long, whereas the EU has been entirely clear right from the start. And um, I don't think no, nothing in that is going to change. The, the EU has spent two and a half years waiting for Britain to decide what it wants. 
And then revealingly, last week, when they had eight options, they said no to all of them. So, I mean, it's a, I don't think any, the EU is not going to change its position anytime soon. Dennis, you've been up close and personal with the British political establishment over the last, uh, over the last couple of years. And I think actually one of, the, one of the big effects of this whole process has been there's always been a sense on this side of the Irish Sea that whatever you might think of the British, they're pretty bloody good at statecraft and uh, running things, running a steady, orderly ship. Um, but that, that idea has been pretty undermined by what we've observed for the last couple of years. Yeah, there's another way of looking at that, of course, which is that uh, regardless of how good a state system or a civil service is, if you ask it to do something irrational, like leave the European Union without a plan, then it's not going to necessarily be able to uh, cover itself in glory. And so I think that uh, you know, where the system, where the officials are concerned, I think I would uh, cut them a certain amount of slack insofar as I think what they were asked to do was something which was impossible. And the uh, political demands uh, you know, on them were, in, were so much in conflict with, uh, with what was realistically uh, achievable in the negotiations. Added to that, of course, was the fact that you had a, a general election in 2017 where uh, Theresa made uh, called the election to increase her majority so that she would give herself more negotiating wriggle room, instead of which, of course, she lost the majority and she's dependent on the DUP, a further complicating factor. Her own party is divided. And as Ronan pointed out, because uh, the, uh, the British political system is so uh, partisan, and because Conservative Party unity is so important to her, she has found herself constitutionally unable to go and seek another majority across the House. And so one of the frustrations that uh, you hear in Brussels and around the European capitals is that when she comes over to Brussels and says, well, you must understand I've got this very, very difficult political situation to deal with. Well, they all say, well, so have we. You know, the uh, Spanish prime minister had to have an election. The Swedish prime minister took four months to form his government. the French president has riots on his streets every Saturday. The German chancellor is on the way out. They all have their troubles, and they know that when you're dealing with a, you know, a great national crisis, what you've got to do is to actually put a uh, party in second place. That's something which she has signally failed to do, and it's one of the reasons why we find ourselves in the situation we do now. Has she been hampered very significantly by, uh, by a fact which has been the subject of great criticism from the Brexit wing of her own party, which is that she's, a, she's not a true believer? And she's implementing this. So she has made missteps, perhaps as a result of that, I think all the way back to Brexit means Brexit, a kind of a tin ear for what this whole movement was about in the first place, and then making commitments that she felt she had to make in order to prove her credentials as a prime minister who would deliver this. Maybe that's the case. Certainly, there's no question looking back, uh, and even at the time, it was pretty clear that uh, you know, uh, moving so quickly to trigger Article 50 and setting out such uh, strong red lines at the beginning of the process made the whole uh, process of negotiations much more difficult. And whether that was because she was a uh, Remainer who was trying to prove her Brexiteer credentials or not, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, but one way or another, it's certainly uh, you know almost everything she she all, almost all the decisions she made at the early stage of the process have turned out to be uh, very unwise ones, and they're ones which have made it much more difficult for Britain to to achieve uh, a better Brexit, uh, you know, as it were. And so, and she now finds herself in the position where uh, she was saying to Parliament just now. Parliament will not allow us to leave without a deal. Uh, She really means she doesn't want to leave without a deal, but she can't even say that. 
uh, to her own party. She's already, as you know, uh, announced that she's going to go. Part of the part of the price of trying to get her deal through is that uh, she's going to step down as uh, as prime minister by the end of May, and uh, and yet that's so far. It's not enough. So, uh, so certainly, uh, you know, she's a big factor. The mistakes that she has made are a big factor. But I do think also that the, uh, you know, it is an unusual, uh, you know, accident of fortune that you've got uh, a Conservative Party in the state it's in, with the kind of divisions that it has, and that you also have uh, a Labour Party where the leadership has the confidence of its members, but it doesn't have the confidence of its members of Parliament. And so, uh, and and so, and there again, you've got a party that's divided. And of course, you have had you know, the biggest split from a party uh, for a number of decades in the independent group, uh, leaving mostly the Labour Party and partly the Conservative Party. And all of those things, Ronan, add to the general sen- sense of confusion. But I suppose one thing that this indicative vote process has done already is crystallise something which people knew, but They've put, now we have sort of numbers on it, which is that you know, Westminster, the House of Commons, is massively against um, leaving the EU without a deal of any sort. And presumably that has some impact on how things are going to play now in advance of this EU summit. It does a bit, but it also um, underlines just how dysfunctional Britain's approach has been. Because if you think these are the really, this has been the really easy bit of the negotiation. All that's in the withdrawal agreement really is, you know, um, the amount of money Britain's going to pay, fine, everyone agrees that. Recognising rights of citizens to remain in the UK or EU after um, after Brexit, fine, everyone agrees that, and the backstop. So we haven't even got to the really hard trade-offs about how, what degree Britain is willing to be a rule taker, what degree of single access to single markets willing to give up, and yet Parliament still can't even agree that. I mean, that makes you think, even if some kind of withdrawal agreement scrapes through, how is it going to be in the next five years when they really will be facing really hard trade-offs about really important economic matters? Because everything, I mean, the, the withdrawal agreement is fairly minimalist. The only thing they're really fighting about is the backstop. That's the first time that Britain really had to think, what degree are we willing to sacrifice our ability to have our own trade deals and stuff like that in order to keep access to the single market, and in this case, to keep the border open with Northern Ireland. And even in that, they've, they've completely collapsed and are unable to take a decision. So how they're then going to take decisions that relate to really key economic matters on hundreds of matters covering all of the single market over the next five years, I don't know, because this has been the easy part of it. And that's what's really quite frightening. Dennis? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, first of all, before we get to that point, obviously, we have to get to the, through the next couple of weeks. And so uh, so I think, you know, you're going to have a, a, a yet another innovative uh, series of uh, of constitutional and parliamentary events over the next week or so. So uh, you're going to have part two of the indicative votes process on Monday. And one option that might come out of that is that you actually get something out of that, which is the favorite option. And what could happen then, say, on Wednesday, is that uh, there's a kind of a runoff. Uh, we were talking here the other day about this as a kind of a, a game show um, you know, uh, of strictly come Brexit or the, or the Brex factor. And in a way, that you're, now, you know, you're now finally getting to uh, the runoff, which would be between whatever the, this indicative votes process uh, produces and Mrs. May's deal. 
And uh, so that might happen, say, on Wednesday. Another option, if all else fails, is that the you know there is uh, one other piece of legislation which has to go through for Britain to leave, and that's the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. And uh, and so that uh, that bill, which uh, is all the stuff you need to do to to make everything happen, they could uh, uh, bring that back for a second reading and put into it the uh, something a line saying uh, and this house approves the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration and that would be a way of getting around the speaker's uh, demand that the same thing can't keep coming back all the time and it's it also having you know seen this whole indicative votes process going on that even more of the brexiteers now an awful lot of the brexiteers have already uh, you know given up the fight uh, but that you might get even more of them and that you also might be able to persuade some Labour MPs. Only five Labour MPs voted with the government today. And so uh, the but the government believes there's there's at least 20 or so that are potentially there for them. Right. The big problem, of course, remains the DUP and the DUP so far are not going anywhere. Dennis, I'm really sorry to, be, to, to appear obtuse here, but I just don't understand how, how that works. Let's say, for example, you know, the, the, the most popular um, uh, vote in the indicative vote, Ken Clark's proposal that, that, the, that the UK remain part of the customs union. So if, 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 if it comes to that and then what? The House of Commons is faced with a choice between, on the one hand, the current withdrawal deal and, on the other hand, a proposal that the UK remains within the customs union. That's like, again, a category failure. That's like comparing, I don't know, not apples and oranges, but apples and architecture. No, it wouldn't, because I think it would be saying that this House would accept the withdrawal agreement and political declaration if it is uh, uh, is modified, amended to include uh, membership of a customs union as one of the aspirations in the uh, political declaration. So that's uh, okay. you know, so that's what it would be. So it wouldn't be saying you know, and we're throwing and we're not getting the backstop and we're not getting we're not paying the money. It wouldn't be you know that uh, the customs union is the only alternative. It would actually be it would be Mrs May's deal plus the customs union. Right. And with the constitutional ahead, problem with that is that uh, the system isn't designed for Parliament to be in control or for Parliament to be in disagreement with the executive. So. Someone would have to go to Brussels and say to them, will you adapt the political declaration to bring it in line with what Parliament now is requesting? And that person should be Theresa May. Would she be willing to go to Brussels and ask for the declaration to be amended to go explicitly against the policy she's had for the last three years? I mean, I mean, maybe there's been plenty of unprecedented things that happened, but it would be quite a strange thing for her to say, this thing I said was a red line and that I negotiated away, I'm now coming back and asking you to put into the agreement. Um, exactly. And that is the problem. So, you know, and, and so I think what the government would hope would be that when, um, you know, when faced with this, because remember, with these indicative votes, you can vote for as many things as you like. And so it may be that whatever emerges from the indicative votes, it has a majority of those uh, of the votes cast on the ballot or you know, there's more eyes than, than no's, but it doesn't necessarily have a majority of the entire House of Commons. So that I think what she would hope would be that, uh, you, know, th- you know, that her deal would, would trump whatever the other option is and given that that again would only be a kind of an indicative vote one way or another uh, you know it wouldn't uh, necessarily require to do it but you, your point is absolutely right she would be the person who would have to go and make the request and that particular request is one that she'd find very difficult to make so uh, and then you're left with uh, various other options one of which would be to say that she is uh, seeking a, a long extension to call a general election and uh, because she said today 
after the vote went down that the that this house you know, the limits of this process in this house are being approached or this house is reaching the limits of its, uh, of what it can do and that you know it sounded listening to it Downing Street didn't confirm this interpretation, but it sounded like she was uh, was warning that you know maybe a, a general election is uh, is the only way out of this because if the House of Commons can't make decisions, you need a new House of Commons, which would leave the Conservative Party with its worst nightmare, which is going into an election still being led by Theresa May. Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think that's that would be, uh, but but that, but it's an interesting one though, because uh, you know she only promised to go if they passed her deal, and if they haven't passed her deal, she might try to dig in now. I, I really can't think, even among her best friends in the Conservative Party, that many actually you know, relish the idea of going uh, into an election under her. So it may be that, you know, uh, I mean, obviously the lengthy extension is likely to be at least for nine months and in any case. It would mean that you'd have to have uh, European Parliament elections. So what you'd probably do would be, uh, you know, unless you decide she really is just barricading the doors and refusing to leave Downing Street, that actually you would have a uh, European elections at the end of May. Around that time, she uh, steps down and you start a conservative leadership campaign and that you can run with it you know it, it can happen in a couple of in a few weeks and then but probably I would say you're talking about an election uh, not necessarily in the summer but in the autumn and uh, and uh, you know under a new conservative leader but uh, but I mean who knows uh, you know this uh, everything can can change and an hour. So Roland, just a last thought on that, the kind of long nightmare which you've talked about the next five or six years, even should the uh, uh, should the UK pass the withdrawal agreement, it's going to start with a fairly hot nightmare, isn't it? If that's the political process for the rest of the year in the UK, uh, an extension of some sort, a European election, a general election, a new Conservative Party leader. Yes, because you imagine she somehow gets a, the deal through by saying the political declaration is open to any soft or hard Brexit. So she gets through, she goes, they select a new leader, and then the two parties go to the country, one promising, the Tories promising a harder Brexit and Labour promising a softer one. That, in a way, could clarify things if things came out that way. But also, even once that's the case, imagine the Conservatives get in and go for a hard Brexit there still are fundamental trade-offs in terms of keeping access to the single market and being um, a meaningful Brexit, where Britain gets a chance to have its own laws and do its own thing. So if that's the case, probably what will happen is just they'll realise that as the years go on, the deal just keeps getting worse and worse as it covers every each particular sector. And remember, they would, the, the transition period is going to be two, is meant to be roughly two years. It'll probably have to be extended so in that period, Britain is totally subject to EU law, but with no votes on any of the EU laws. It's just going to be a miserable political experience. For well, can I just add to the misery for one second and, and point Please out do. that once Britain does hold European elections in May, there is no limit to how many extensions it can get. Uh, during the uh, the term, the five-year term of the next European Parliament. So there's no reason why it can't keep extending and uh, and prolong the agony without ever actually leaving and still having full rights as an EU member state. Yeah, and which could easily, if there's a hardcore prime minister in office, Tory prime minister, Britain could be threatening to do things like wield its veto to, ble- to block the EU budget in, unless it gets concessions uh, in the Brexit process. So there's huge downsides for the EU for a long extension. Oh God, you have been warned. We could be doing Friday podcasts forever if it, if it goes on like this. Listen, we should leave it at that. Happy Brexit Day anyway to you both, uh, Dennis and Ronan. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. 
Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to Dennis and Ronan for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts and your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.